from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, the U.S. Farm Report 2021 College Roadshow is back on the road this weekend, this time from Kansas State University. Welcome to Manhattan, Kansas, as here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. From a fire at a Nebraska JBS packing plant to a computer glitch at Tyson, trouble at packing plants took center stage. Total slaughter for the week is going to be off, but not probably less than 10,000 head. As the White House says, it's taking on big meat. Is the soil key to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture? Our hope is that we can make agriculture carbon neutral, if not carbon negative. What research from right here at Kansas State University is revealing. And in John's world? Two girls for every boy. And that and more from our 2021 College Roadshow from Kansas State. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Kansas State University is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Now for the news, all eyes in the beef industry were watching this as it unfolded this week. A fire at a JBS beef plant in Grand Island, Nebraska. The fire starting Sunday night and was quickly upgraded to a five alarm blaze affiliate KHGI supplying this video. People on the scene said the fire appeared to be located in the roof of the rendering side of the plant, which is separate from the main production facility. The cause of the fire was still under investigation, but the company was able to resume operations on Tuesday. The plant has a daily slaughter capacity of 6000 head. That's about 5% of the daily slaughter in the nation. News of the fire sent CME cattle futures sharply lower at the open on Monday. Glenn Tonzer of Kansas State University says that market reaction was short lived. Downtime was fairly short, specifically as it relates to harvesting ability. So that's a good thing. Uh, at the end of the day, the market impact is going to be minimal. Total slaughter for the week is going to be off, but not probably less than 10,000 head than it would have been without those announcements and glitches. So again, in the aggregate picture, that's a really good thing. A federal court in Minnesota is denying a motion to dismiss an antitrust lawsuit brought against the nation's four biggest meat packers. The motion to dismiss was brought by the meat packers accused. RCAF originally filed the lawsuit two and a half years ago. There is good news about grain export terminals along the Mississippi River. Cargill saying it reopened one of its Louisiana grain export terminals on Monday. U.S. corn export inspections hit their lowest level in several years last week, with no grain inspected along the Louisiana Gulf Coast. And this week, China canceled some soybean sales with reports Chinese traders bought Brazilian beans in order to meet near-term needs due to issues here at home caused by Hurricane Ida. Well, Congress continues to work on a tax plan to fund the president's $3.5 trillion rebuilding plan, and a new House committee's plan may put some farmers' fears to rest. The new plan outlined by the House Ways and Means Committee last week does not include the transfer tax and has left the step-up in basis intact. Farm CPA Paul Niefer says this new plan is more favorable for family farmers, but he says it does include some changes that could cause dairy farmers and larger farms to have to pay more. There's no longer a transfer tax due at death. There, there potentially could be an estate tax due, but the estate tax, if, if you have a farmer that's got a large estate and it's all related to farming assets, the, uh, the IRS allows them to pay that tax over a 15-year period. So it's not like they have to come up with a lot of tax up front. 
If there's liquid assets, yes, they have to pay cash for that, but liquid assets are going to cover that. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack drawing fire from several folks in ag after he wrote an op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal defending the possible changes to the step-up in basis, saying it would not hurt family farmers. He also outlined his reasoning on AgriTalk with Chip Flory this week. There are two pieces to this. One, if a family member is going to continue to own and operate the farm, then there's no tax due. And then two, if for whatever reason the farm has decided to be sold, there's a million dollar exemption per person, $2 million per couple. As we told you in June, Texas A&M did a study on the proposed tax on inherited property. The study, requested by two Republican lawmakers on congressional ag committees, found if the full Sensible Taxation and Equity Promotion Act were approved, it would impact most family farms they studied. Only 2% of farmers they studied would not be impacted. Getting summer crops to the finish line appears like it will be a challenge. The latest crop progress report shows that condition ratings for the nation's major grains continues to decline. And in some cases, it may be disease or pest pressure taking its toll on crops. Farmers here in Kansas and Ohio are reporting infestations of armyworms. And Ohio is a state that typically does not see armyworms due to the cold winter climate. One entomologist telling me that it became an issue due to insects migrating in via winds. They're showing up in oats, sorghum, alfalfa. Two Ohio farmers telling us that army worms destroyed one field in a matter of hours. Starting along the edges of them, starting to work their way in, and then this field in particular, they started in along the backside, and just within a matter of eight to ten hours, they made their way across this whole field and wiped it out. Here in Kansas, some farmers started spraying last month in an effort to kill the invasion, but with the pesticide used to kill the uninvited guests off in short supply, they worry about running out as the invasion continues to spread and could see another wave. Still to come, is it an Indian summer or just summer weather hanging on a little longer this year? We have a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Hoffman next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's September 21st auction. Items start closing September 21st. Go to auctions.machinerypeat.com to register. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Mike Hoffman joins us now for weather. Mike, a lot of combines rolling this week on my way over to Kansas. So with this heat, though, that we're seeing, is it technically Indian summer or just summer not wanting to say goodbye? Good morning to you, Ty, and I would call it just summer trying to hang on. <laughs> it's just not willing to give up. Typically, you call it Indian summer after you've had a, a frost or a freeze in your particular area. Let's take a look at the root zone. Still some wet areas, obviously. Some of this tropical moisture, and it's uh, going to turn even wetter next week when we show the newest one to you. Uh, parts of uh, far northwestern Florida, southern Alabama, parts of Georgia. Wet areas across the northern plains as well, although that should be starting to dry out. Haven't had a lot of rain so far uh, over the past several days anyway. Drought monitor. Uh, you, you can see how it's kind of splotchy up here now through the northern plains. You've at least had some areas of rain over the past few weeks, but still there are some extreme and exceptional drought areas. Northern Minnesota, parts of North Dakota, parts of South Dakota, back into Montana, and then obviously most of the West, except for southern uh, New Mexico, southern Arizona, still under a, a pretty bad drought. Most areas east of there, not really worried about drought at this point. Here's the jet stream. We do have, for the first time in a while, a major trough coming into the West. Look how slow that moves. 
On Tuesday, it's pulling up golf moisture, widespread areas of showers and thunderstorms. Now, it's not going to be heavy rain everywhere. I'm just saying there's going to be uh, uh, lots of it scattered about the middle of the country. Look how slow it moves then as we head through Thursday, still sitting over Minnesota, the cutoff low. And it kind of uh, continues to uh, move eastward then over the Great Lakes as we head into the weekend. That will bring some cooler air with it as well. But the heat, after a cool start, returns to the western part of the country. Let's take a look at the weather maps as we head through this week. On Monday, stationary front in the southeast, scattered showers and thunderstorms. Golf moisture is starting to return there. There's that slow-moving area of low pressure with some rain around it. Heat's coming up into the middle of the country as well. By Wednesday, then, it hasn't moved much. Cold front has moved a little bit into uh, the, the almost into the Mississippi Valley, so showers and thunderstorms up and down that area scattered throughout the Appalachians into the Ohio and Tennessee valleys. And you can see scattered rain showers across the northern plains as well as that cooler or less hot air comes into the western portions of the country. By Friday, it's starting to move, but it's still over the northern Great Lakes. This is the same low that we see on Monday in the northwestern plains. Cold front down uh, through the Tennessee and Ohio Valley with showers and thunderstorms along it. Scattered showers throughout the Great Lakes. Uh, dry weather for the western half of the country. So the 30 day outlook for temperatures. I'm going above normal for much of the country from west to east. Below normal right along the Gulf Coast because of the wet ground. Below normal far northern plains into the Pacific Northwest. Precipitation next 30 days above normal from the Gulf Coast into the Great Lakes in the Northeast, below normal for much of Florida and for the far western states. Tyne. Thanks, Mike. Well, from a shift in policy in Washington to talking about trade, we'll cover it all in our marketing roundtables from Kansas State University. That's next. Welcome back to our 2021 College Roadshow from right here at Kansas State University. Thank you to Syngenta and Golden Harvest for partnering with us. Well, as we look at some of the topics that we're covering today in our marketing roundtables, uh, Jennifer, I want to start with you because when you look at the ag policy today in Washington and how it's going to impact on a farmer level, I mean, we're not even talking about a farm bill right now, yet there are concerns about crop insurance funding and different things. Do you think that crop insurance funding at this point is at risk for U.S. farmers? I'd be really surprised. Um, across the past decade, I've seen different presidential administrations, both Republican and Democrat, make big cuts to crop insurance subsidies, premium subsidies, and those don't go anywhere once it gets to Congress. This is a popular program. It's very highly used, a lot of stakeholders. So I think if crop insurance ended up being cut, we'd start seeing even huge, bigger changes to our broader farm programs. and. I'm teaching agricultural policy right now, so these, these proposed cuts are nothing new. In 85, the Reagan administration proposed huge cuts to some of the price, target price programs, and those were considered dead on arrival. So this isn't new. Well, some things that are new, uh, <laughs> Nathan, when you look at the focus on CRP, and the Biden administration made very clear they want to enroll more acres in CRP, and the latest data says they, they've done that. Is there a certain level that you think that we will see a, a, 
a cap? I mean, are there just some acres that we're going to see, you know, maybe not go into CRP that the Biden administration sees as, as a possibility? Well, I mean, the, the main policy mechanism to drive that increase in enrollment will be the cap that's set in the farm bill. So that'll be a, a major farm bill discussion, I think, is, is what happens to that acreage cap to CRP and do we see uh, that increase uh, or, or stay the same? And, and there's questions of, of where, whether producers would benefit more from a program like CRP or uh, allocating the budget from ARC and PLC to CRP or more towards the ARC and PLC type programs. Is there an answer on that yet? Yeah, so I mean, some of the research I've done is, is looking at how much farmers benefit from these uh, different type of programs. And, and one of the key things that hinges on is how much when you uh, decrease production in the United States, how much does that increase prices? Uh, and I find that if you decrease uh, production by just 10% for corn, uh, you increase prices by 5.4%. And uh, so you do get some, some price movement there, but overall not big enough. Uh, to make it really a better program or providing more benefits to producers than, than ARC and PLC. Well, when you look at some of the land prices today, I mean, we're looking at historic land sales. We talked about a record sale in Iowa, $22,600 an acre. I mean, the land market right now is just on this bull run and experts say, listen, we don't know when this is going to end. Are we going to have to see USDA up some of those payments for CRP in order to incentivize some of these acres that they want to come in the program? Yeah, I mean, certainly that uh, the, the rental rates that are there uh, and, and what kinds of things farmers need to do to other kinds of practices to be enrolled. Uh, that, that's going to be a key uh, mechanism that needs to be set to, to achieve whatever goal they want to have. Well, Logan, when you look at the consumer demand side of it, a lot of this policy that's in Washington is around conservation, is around climate, some of that. Is it clear on what producer or what consumers are willing to pay for and what they're not willing to pay for when it comes to some of those practices? Well, ultimately it depends. I mean, we have so many consumers in the United States that sustainability is a hot topic and they want those things on their food labels. Um, another new hot topic is resiliency, and so resilient ag. So we're seeing some premiums on those different products, either uh, row crop, end products, or livestock. And so ultimately the consumer is king, and so they get to ticket those things. Uh, but ultimately, if those things are gonna be labeled on food products, we're gonna have to have congressional acts um, to have regulation of that with FDA. Is there a price that they are or are not willing to pay? I mean, when you talk to Glenn Tonzer from here at Kansas State University, we have historic retail prices for things like proteins. At the same time, the demand has been phenomenal. So higher prices has not shied people away from buying proteins. Is there a certain price level that consumers just aren't willing to pay for some of these practices? I mean, again, ultimately it kind of depends on what is their pocketbook that has discretionary income. About 30% of the U.S. Um, consumers um, disposable income goes to food and so um, we definitely know that there's a variety of people in the Midwest and of course um, know the scientific um, nature behind agriculture and though as opposed to uh, western and eastern states they really don't kind of understand they're so removed from the farm and so we do see the differentiation um, with geographics and psychographics and so again ultimately it kind of just depends on the consumer. All right, well, we need to take a quick break from Kansas State University, but we will be back with more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. Well, the College Roadshow this year feels, well, normal. Students back on campus, in-person classes. This stadium right here will be filled this weekend with fans who were hungry for in-person football last year. But for John, there's another change taking place with higher education. 
With time on the road to visit colleges, I thought this recent statistic regarding college enrollment might be pertinent. The final numbers from the last academic year showed the collective U.S. student body at two and four year colleges to be 60% women and 40% men, a three to two imbalance. Honestly, the first thought that crossed my mind when I read this was, criminy, even I could have gotten a date with those odds. Then I remembered the recent comments that I had made about veterinarian schools. Almost 90% of those students are women. This trend shows no sign of slowing either, as college officials expect the ratio to be two to one in a few years. That's right, the Beach Boys were just ahead of their time when they sang about two girls for every boy. Even engineering demonstrates this trend. More seriously is how this will affect American households, marriages, birth rates, and our economy. For example, given the lifetime earnings differential with college grads earning at least a million dollars more over their career, women will likely become the primary income source for a majority of families soon. Eight years ago, it was already at 40 percent. Degreed women marry later, have fewer children, and are less likely to divorce. What women are studying in college is revealing as well, with many occupations now majority female. This future stream of graduates will add even more to this list. Farming remains as likely will for some time overwhelmingly male, but all around our business, we will be working more often with women than seemed likely just a few years ago. This week, I was startled when I called a tractor dealer with a service problem and discovered the service manager was now a young woman. No matter what or where you farm, you are more likely than not to buy inputs from, get loans from, seek medical care from, have your books done by and audited by, receive financial planning, hire as private detectives, and have your children driven to school by a woman. We don't know how associative marriages, where people tend to marry those with similar educational and financial levels, but women now match men in marrying down. Researchers are not sure why men are not going to college. For farmers, it seems to be a perception of costs and benefits. But it also means that especially in the early years of a farm marriage, unless part of a large farm operation, the income from a working wife will be critical. The old advice to marry a nurse or teacher still seems apt. Later on, the health insurance and pensions from professional farm wives will be very important. More farmers should look at their 1040 forms and ponder whether their occupation is a business or a hobby on wife support. And above all, don't cause a divorce. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Machine Repeat has this weekend's Tractor Tales. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're going to check in with our friends in Kansas and see about a 1948 Oliver 60. This is an 1948 Oliver 60. I bought this tractor from an Al Summers dealer in Baldwin, Kansas uh, about 32 years ago. And I just used it for, he just used it for a toy or a plaything, do a farm with it. And some hubcaps were missing, and half the grill was missing. 
Oh, a few other things. I had to find some used parts to put it back together like it's supposed to be. I was kind of raised on Oliver's and Case, and so I kind of knew a little bit about them. And I've got the, uh, the crank for it, I've got the belt pulley for it, but I'm just kind of favorite. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get rid of it. Thanks, Greg. Well, when we come back from policy taking shape in Washington to more talk about agriculture's role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, is the key to unlocking those secrets actually in the soil? What Kansas State Research is revealing next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Kansas State University is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Welcome back to our 2021 College Roadshow from Kansas State University. Well, just last week, President Biden continued his commitment to tackling climate challenges with lofty goals for weaning airlines off the fuels used today. But research right here at Kansas State University could be unlocking secrets from the soil. Farm fields planted in the middle of Manhattan. Uh, we're looking for the exact amount of nitrogen that the soil uh, gets to the... Are releasing secrets from within the soil. It's all about the soil. Dr. Chuck Rice is a microbiologist by training and his research growing side by side is opening eyes and opportunity. We're finding some unique things. We're getting uh, carbon sequestered in the soil. A 32-year continuous corn plot to his left and a field of seven years continuous no-till on the right. What we're trying to do is, again, understand the sustainability or the environmental footprint. So a focused carbon, this one's more focused on the nitrogen. And while some of his research is showing broad findings. No-till is the way to go. It's what's happening underneath that's harvesting valuable results. No-till sequesters about twice as much as tillage. Um, it saves that and they've been going long enough now that we're starting to see carbon sequestered not only in the top two inches, but that's moving down into the next layer, two to six inches. Rice and a team of researchers at Kansas State are exploring how to manage nitrogen in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Particularly nitrous oxide, which is a potent greenhouse gas. It's about 300 times more potent than a molecule of CO2. Research that could benefit farmers, the bottom line, and the environment at the same time. Environmentally, it's important uh, not to have those greenhouse gases, N2O, released. But economically, it's important because that loss means less fertilizer available for the corn plant, which the farmer nitrogen is a key um, component of corn production, and so we don't want to waste that nitrogen. He says while the right timing, placement, and rate of nitrogen applications are important, he's digging deeper, learning how to manage that nitrogen and reduce losses. What we found is that by using uh, inhibitors that would slow the release of nitrogen and also put it on when the corn really needs it, which is about a foot high, V6, uh, then we get uh, a 50% reduction 
in nitrogen losses by timing that. As the financial savings from preventing nitrogen running off can be huge, the environmental piece is also key. First six weeks from planting until the corn really needs the nitrogen, that's when our soils are the wettest and you create the environment for gaseous losses or leaching. Rice says some of the work done here at Kansas State suggests agriculture can reduce nitrogen losses by 50% just by changing the way it's managed. If you apply no-till and cover crops that we can car sequester carbon that would reduce the emissions by another by 50%. Uh, and he says while nitrogen is a focus, there are other meaningful production changes farmers are already making today. The number one thing is minimal uh, disturbance. Efforts to reduce tillage while changing up the crops farmers plant. And I would argue corn soybean, sorry for the Midwest, is not really a good rotation. You want to add in more complexity. A visionary within agriculture, Rice already has a Nobel Peace Prize for his climate work within ag. Our hope is that we can make agriculture carbon neutral, if not carbon negative. Cultivating change as Rice says agriculture can be the solution to climate challenges today. And coming up, there may be a recipe for reducing manure from cows when it comes to the impact on greenhouse gas emissions. That's still to come. But first, we dive back into our marketing roundtable discussion next. One very, very important aspect of, of uh, sustainability from a crop perspective is maintaining soil health. We're doing a lot of work here with things like cover crop, uh, no-till approaches, uh, those kinds of things which really uh, are important for sustaining the, the health of our soils. Welcome back to Kansas State University for our 2021 College Roadshow. All right, Jennifer, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, crop insurance. But when you look at the livestock side of it, do you think it's realistic to expect some of these crop insurance programs to, obvious, to also be moved over into the livestock sector? Definitely. Um, Crop insurance is not just for crops. There are products that livestock producers can use. And I've been looking in this, into this a lot because in Kansas, we actually have more income from cattle than from crops. Um, the two major products look at, can protect against price risk. So livestock risk protection, this was recently made more affordable. Um, so, so we're trying to get the word out for producers to understand that this is a potential tool to manage price risk. There's also pasture, rangeland, and forage. It can protect against rainfall risk. So, and these have been growing in the past few years, so there, there is more interest. Well, for both crops and livestock and, mm -hmm. and cattle, do you think there will be conservation incentives or even requirements when it comes to federal crop insurance? Is that something that could be introduced? Oh, definitely. It's not going away. So there are already some minimal conservation yeah, requirements right. that you can't use crop insurance on um, wetlands um, or other highly erodible land. So that's already there. We've seen incentives for cover crops in recent years. Uh, there just was an endorsement just approved for split application of nitrogen. So it can protect against risk involved with that. More broadly, I, there is pressure for crop insurance to not incentivize less use of conservation practices. And there's also interest in using crop insurance as a tool to get producers to adopt conservation practices. So sort of one of the bigger picture questions we're interested in is how do you do this while still preserving the integrity of right. the crop insurance program. 
Well, speaking of some of these conservation programs, I mean, Nathan, when you look at carbon credits in our Farm Journal report, we talked a lot about carbon credits. Uh, you know, and it's a system that, you know, there's needs transparency. Uh, it's a bit of a wild west. There's not a single metric system that's kind of used in this. Uh, you know, when you talk to producers today, sounds like only less than 1% are actually involved in and have signed a carbon contract. What are you telling producers? What are, where are their opportunities and where are there maybe some, some, some traps or some watch outs they need to be mindful of? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things just to, to be clear with them is that in when they're investigating these, they really need to look into the contract because there's a lot of things. How long do you need to be involved uh, in this practice, landowner and tenant uh, difficulties and how who owns the carbon credit? And it, and it really differs by who's providing the carbon credit. And so really look into a lot of details and not just the price that's being offered. And, and certainly another thing is just to understand that this market's going to be pretty volatile. Uh, it's, it's a completely voluntary demand right now of these companies going out and buying carbon credits to try to uh, meet their own climate pledges and, and things. So, so where this goes and, and how they view the quality of these carbon credits could, could lead to a lot of volatility over the next few years, I think. Yeah, and you look at, at some of this volatility, that could continue to happen. Um, do you think that when it comes to some of these early adopters, of these conservation practices like here you know you know some some producers who have done uh, no-till since the since the 90s and they're saying listen these programs i don't qualify for because i have to implement something new is it going to take a government program to reward some of these folks that have been conservation minded now for decades i think that's probably where that has to go because uh people that are wanting to buy these carbon credits the companies that are buying these they want to see new uh, offsets of carbon and that this is this is additional so it's hard to see that coming from from this voluntary market now but it is hard for these people that have, that were early adopters and so you know I think probably the the best opportunity through that is, is some kind of government involvement. Logan when you look at uh, the European Union and some of the food products that consumers go to buy I mean there is a clear label of what that carbon footprint is on some of these some of these products and it's been talked about of oh will we see that in the US Do, as quickly as these conversations are progressing, do you think that could be a reality here or is there not a fit? I mean, I think as consumers get to get, um, see a variety of products on the global market, um, there was always that, that trends that will continue and consumers will want and voice and advocate for those different labelings on their products. And so I would say in the next couple of generations, we'll definitely see maybe some food label changes, um, but ultimately um, USDA and FDA have regulations about what is actually specifically regulated and definitions like we saw with organic in 2002. And so um, having formal, formal definitions will definitely be an act of policy, a governmental policy. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate it. We need to take a break and then we'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Well, is there a recipe for reducing manure from cows and how could shade and greater cow comfort play a role, not just diet? Well, one Kansas State researcher is exploring just that. One, two. Counting each breath. So she would have 12 breaths per minute. While documenting signs of possible stress. Her chest movements are minimal to none. The team at Kansas State University is honing in on heat stress. What we're noticing with the cattle today, um, you can see that they're panting and it is not like an abnormally hot day today but you do see that they're panning. They're, they do have some heat stress. The data is constantly collected. Once you get into the hot days, you're gonna see higher panning scores of a three to a four. And so that's when we really see the impact of the shade. As that research and more is taking shape, 
here. We are at the KSU Beef Stalker Unit. It is one of several units located within the Department of Animal Sciences and Industries, located about five miles north and west outside of Manhattan, Kansas. The picturesque landscape in the Flint Hills is a second home for Dale Blassie and his team. For the better part of five years, our unit has focused specifically on the use of limit feeding. Limit feeding in cattle that Blassie has seen dramatically reduce manure output while also improving feed efficiency in cattle. Limit feeding is feeding specifically to the NRC requirements where we essentially program gain calves to a, a certain level of gain. And so we are able to measure that performance on a weekly basis by weighing them as a pen group and adjust their intake of the diets that we feed. While limit feeding isn't new, what Blassie is uncovering is. What we're able to determine from our research and by doing the intensive digestibility work with our ruminally cannulated cattle is calculate the amount of, of manure that is produced from the two various diets. And our previous research over the five last years suggests a reduction in manure output of about 35%. Two pens side by side, one fed with a traditional diet of mostly roughage. Our, our limit feeding diet uh, consists of only about 13% roughage. That's versus 45% on the ad lib. And the other with an alternative limit feeding recipe. And as we move further to this direction over here, we have the more digestible, the limit fed diet that is comprised of about 40% of a co-product. And so the animals are able to clean it up. A highly digestible diet with a visual difference of less waste. Is much more highly digestible and as a consequence, there's less of it coming out, out of the animal. Two different diets fed year round with the research trials lasting anywhere from 45 to 100 days on these calves. We're able to step them up a approximately about a quarter of a percent per day so we can have these calves on full feed for our intended diet as we go through our receiving and our various research studies, we can feed them and hold them at about 2.2% of their body weight. While students document observations in the pens, these tags are also constantly collecting data. We're incorporating this technology to try to give us a better job in terms of understanding what is happening in a pen setting. Data that shows while the environmental and economic benefits add up, convenience is also key. In Kansas, we are prone to drought as many other parts of the country are. But, uh, the roughage in and of itself is a real inconvenience for our producers. An issue sourcing roughage, which limit feeding can help solve. With all these issues with weed management and compaction, all these things kind of tie together in terms of making the limit feeding a real sustainable practice. As researchers here search for sustainable answers, the research is producing practical applications in the short run. And so if there is a rain event or a snow event, there's no need to clean the bunks. They're already cleaned and stripped dry. Feasible answers to a problem some producers didn't even realize they could fix. We feel very confident to the point where we can initiate the feeding of this diet one day after arrival of these calves. A sustainable solution that could help propel the cattle industry's quest to reach climate neutral beef production just two decades down the road. Still to come, is the labor shortage really due to labor? That's customer support next. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineRepeat.com and click Sell Mine. MachineRepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online.
Well, while agriculture has been dealing with a labor shortage for years, the issue is being magnified this year as it's a problem even outside of agriculture. Here's John Phipps. From Dan Barite. Well, John, the obvious thing to do from your apparent management of engineers, highly biased, gentleman, farmer, farm owners perspective is to pay farm workers less, have them work longer hours, provide them with no sweat equity, and provide no health care or retirement benefits, right? That way, multi-generational farm owners such as yourself, multi-generational farm bureaucrats, multi-generational agrochemical people, multi-generational anti-agrochemical class action suit lawyers, etc., will be able to purchase bigger, big green tractors as multi-generational gentlemen farm workers fly food and tractor parts around the universe, do charity work for their church, and provide an even greater inheritance for their great, 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 etc. grandchildren. Uh, please send an address. First, I haven't commented on the farm labor problem. Tyne has mentioned it several times regarding the problems farmers are having finding workers. I don't speak for Tyne, but I think her reportage is always even-handed. That we would spend more time on the farmer's point of view is kind of predictable from the name of the show. That said, and your sarcasm is duly noted, I think this is a problem that market forces will work out, and not just for farmers either. Even in our sparsely populated county, wages being offered vociferously at, by small manufacturers and service companies have risen sharply, and our labor, labor situation remains pretty tight. Many blame the extended pandemic unemployment benefits, but after four months of data, there is no unemployment rate differences between those four states that cut off benefits early and those who did not. There was a difference in state GDP growth, however, as those who stopped benefits grew more slowly. Unemployment is exacerbated by worker skills and geographical mismatches. The right workers are just not in the right places. Until, day, uh, until school start, daycare keeps many women at home as well. One reason I think farm workers are hard to find is that while employers may think they know what a job should pay, with a labor shortage, workers decide. The supply curve is easy economics. Want more workers? Pay more. Thanks, John. Up next, Kansas State is known for helping prepare future leaders, and there's one current student who's already leaving his mark. We'll introduce you to an animal science major pulling double duty as student body president. That's next. Welcome back to our 2021 College Roadshow from Kansas State University. And to wrap things up, we have Michael Dowd with us, a senior here at Kansas State University, an impressive individual, even though you're an ag major, the president of the student body here at Kansas State University. So first of all, Michael, talk a little bit about your major and your emphasis and, and really what options are you exploring upon graduation? Yeah, so I uh, got involved in agriculture uh, really through uh, my mom's side of the family, raised hogs uh, in Hutchinson, Kansas. And so started at an early age showing, showing hogs for 4-H, that transitioned into FFA, really found uh, that spark for leadership and uh, interest in agriculture as a career. Um, and so that, that like continued on until uh, I picked my major, um, ran for state office and uh, 
served as a state officer my freshman year. Uh, that kind of catapulted me into a bunch of different leadership opportunities, uh, but still maintain that focus and, and love of animal agriculture. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to animal science. Uh, and then we actually had a new program that had just started called Global Food Systems Leadership. Um, and that was probably one of the coolest um, parts of my major, just because it allowed me to have conversations with my peers about big topics in agriculture that affected the global food system. So really found a passion for that. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. And, you know, Michael, definitely it sounds like some of your experience in FFA helped get you to where you are and really propel you on this track. And speaking of that, Monday night coming up September 20th, you can join us on RFD TV or agweb.com as we kick off our Farm on Benefit concert. Headliners are Easton Corbin as well as Alex Miller both of whom were very involved in FFA, grew up on farms. Well, they are helping give back to National FFA on RFD TV or agweb.com, the Farm on Benefit concert, and the funds that we raise will go to the National FFA organization. So, Michael, thank you again. Thank you all for joining us this week for a college road trip from right here at Kansas State University. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.